Hi there, E&E family. We're back at it again. Warm welcome. A lot feels jumpy and uncertain. Times like these really put our mental health to the test and even force us to find new ways to cater to our mental health or to find ways to enhance it. So let me know the things that you get up to that make you feel less anxious, for example. A personal favorite of mine, which you might guess from the introductory episode, is journaling. There's a power in putting down your thoughts, you know, whether it's writing them down or typing them down, you know, just feels like letting off some kind of baggage. So I'm aware that not everyone will find this as effective, but um, I'm really interested to know what keeps you going. It may as well help somebody else out there who feels like they've run out of ideas. The voice message option is right there on the Anchor app whenever you load a link to listen to any episode. So do feel free to send any thoughts through. The alternative is my social media, of course. Send me a direct message on Instagram or on my Facebook page. Both handles are at Express and Encompass. Anyways, in the midst of all the uncertainty, we keep on moving with a bright cloud of gratitude over us. I want us all to imagine a bright cloud of gratitude over us. And what I mean by that is anything that you are grateful for, big or small, remember that wherever you go and in whatever that you do, let that walk with you. This is episode five of the Express and Encompass podcast, and we are acquainting ourselves more with the concept of attachment styles. But today we specifically focus on attachment styles in childhood. And the deeper focus here is early childhood. This is a very important and foundational stage. So we're looking at around the ages of two to six years old. There are some few concepts that we might borrow from the previous episode, where the focus is on infancy, which is around birth to about two years. So do check that one out for a better understanding of the topic at large. I think it's safe to say we now know of Balbi's main hypothesis, which is that the nature of one's attachment with their primary caregiver influences further development and further relationships. We last spoke of behaviors such as crying and clinging, which we did say are evolutionary mechanisms. So even in childhood, these continue to play a vital role. Balbi believed that once they reach the toddler stage, these behaviors could be boxed into a system called the attachment behavioral system, which he believed was a system that guided us in the ways of creating habits that we would then use to form and maintain any relationships that we would come across. So they would act as a guideline of sorts when it comes to us creating these relationships. Those who are shown love and care and support are more likely to be secure, whereas those that experience some inconsistencies or maybe even negligence from their caregivers could be more likely to have feelings of anxiety regarding the relationship they have with their parents. Balbi's work had really made him realize that the impact of family context and related experiences had a considerable effect on the emotional and behavioral well-being of children. Therefore, he felt that any professionals that dealt with children needed to take note of children's living conditions and surroundings, their experiences with peers, their experiences in different contexts, such as school and community centers. This would then mean a more holistic approach is to be used to assess the behaviors that we observe in children. The bigger goal here was to put the child's well-being at the core, but also to simultaneously help parents become better caregivers to their children. 
So we'll carry on with the attachment styles as first brought up in the previous episode. Let's note that these attachment styles follow a certain pattern. So for instance, if an individual displayed a secure attachment style in infancy, this style is more likely to continue as the infant develops into a child and then into an adult. Attachment style number one, secure attachment. So, an infant who is said to have a secure attachment could then be more likely to follow through with a secure attachment in their childhood. These children are more likely to perceive others as caring and supportive. They see themselves as competent, able, and worthy of consideration and respect. So it's like a win-win, really. They also go on to do well in contexts such as the classroom. They cooperate better with others and show a good sense of resilience in activities, challenges, and different levels of play. By this, we clearly see that they're able to form good relations and interact positively with others. The more positive the interaction, the more they are able to practice something that I really feel is important, and that is perspective taking. They are able to learn at a young age how to understand how someone else sees and interprets experiences. They also learn to trust others. These are clearly very essential foundations for the child as they interact more and more with a broader environment than just their home environment. Let's now move on to attachment style number two, which was also touched on in the previous episode, and this is anxious avoidant attachment styles. The patterns that we saw in infancy are then more likely to carry on in the form of the child not being as effective in handling situations that seem to be stressful or threatening in some way. A common behavior is withdrawing from other peers or similar situations in order to not have to seek help. Even though the key here, according to the child, may be a sense of independence or self-sufficiency, it hinders the progress they may make in forming or maintaining thriving relationships with their peers. The downside of this withdrawal can include antisocial behaviors such as lying, bullying, any form of aggression or any possessiveness, and the child may actually prefer to keep on distancing themselves from others in order to avoid any emotional stress. This is especially so in the classroom context again. If we want to understand this at surface level, there are many other children with various traits and personalities in a classroom, so the way they will interact will vary in different degrees. Some may be introverted, some may be extroverted, some may warm up to new environments quicker than others. This then means that especially for the one who felt anxious around their mother, probably because of her inconsistencies, now feels like that again when tensions arise among peers. I don't know what this sparks for you, but then one thing for sure is that for me, it sparks one of Balbi's thoughts of an internal working model. So we see that the model is really at work here, right? That the child had taken up from when they were an infant, and this is seeming to follow through. The third attachment style is... Okay, so we're going to ignore the fact that I just did that. 
The anxious resistant attachment style, that is attachment style number three. Before we go into it, let's quickly zoom in on the key difference between anxious avoidant, which is the attachment style number two that we just spoke of, and now this one number three, which is anxious resistant. Right, so the key difference. When we look at anxious avoidant, this is when one craves excessive space or independence. And then the anxious resistant is where one craves excessive closeness. So we see the two opposite ends. Anxious avoidant craves for space and independence, whereas anxious resistant craves for excessive closeness. So this is a good way to not confuse the two, since sometimes they can seem very similar. So now that that's out the way, here are a few common behaviors that are seen with the anxious resistant attachment style. And remember that this is the opposite side of what the anxious avoidant style is about. Right. So the anxious resistant attachment style. So children who exhibit this style are more likely to have a lack of self-confidence. And for that reason, they find it more comfortable to stick with their caregivers. This is a difficult situation, especially when a child has to get used to not being home all day and having to go to daycare or nursery school for the very first time. The transition is not going to be as smooth as it could be for any child, really, but more so for the anxious resistant. Their emotional reactions may come off as exaggerated and excessive. This highlights the importance of emotion regulation. And this is in the very early stages of childhood, as these form the foundation for the kind of patterns they will follow in regulating their emotions as they grow up. Emotion regulation is an important concept that we're going to unpack a little later. Another common behavior pattern is social isolation because they mostly prefer to cling onto their caregivers. This then inhibits them from forming and maintaining healthy relationships. Because of this, it may not be as light and as simple as those with a secure attachment style to view people as trustworthy or supportive or just people that they can warm up to. In some cases, this may even escalate to suspicion of good acts, good genuine acts, good genuine people, good genuine vibes. So it's going to take more time. We're going to take it a bit further now. Yes, hold on tight. We're taking a peep into a fourth attachment style. Yes, attachment style number four. This fourth attachment style was added onto the list years after the original three. This one is called the disorganized, disorientated attachment style, which generally speaking refers to children who do not quite have a predictable pattern of attachment behaviors. Now, this one is an interesting one to say the least. It is unpredictable for the caregiver themselves, but do you think this discloses the caregiver's own unpredictability? Or is it just all on the child, their genetic makeup, or their general perceptions? So, children that display a disorganized, disorientated attachment style may potentially be problematic in the classroom setting, since this is a setting that generally requires order, structure, and stability. A child is given a set of rules which he or she needs to abide by.
This simple practice is what slowly and eventually helps an individual understand the importance of social order and the implications of abiding by the law, as an example. These show a sense of, number one, agreeableness, and number two, morality. Agreeableness has to do with a certain warmth, cooperativeness, consideration towards others, and then morality is not only doing what is considered good or upright, but also knowing the distinction between right and wrong according to certain principles. Now, remember I said we would speak on emotion regulation. Yeah, let's quickly look at emotion. Basic emotions are visible from infancy. Infants display joy when they giggle and when they kick up their feet, for example. But as they grow, they display more than just basic emotions. Through their development, children become more and more aware of their own emotions as well as the emotions of others. They also start learning how to control these very emotions that they are becoming aware of. This then means that the more they understand their emotions, the more they can learn how to guide their behavior in social settings. So as a side note, let us bear in mind that social settings and situations are governed by conventions or rules of behavior. So in other words, this simply means that there are behaviors that are generally perceived as acceptable and some as totally unacceptable. Right, so let's dig into some examples. Greetings, something as simple as a greeting, is perceived as an essential part of human interaction. It is seen as a gesture made to show another person that they have been acknowledged or that their presence has been noted. So you see someone who you happen to know and they are passing by, you say hi and yay. They are pleased that not only did you see them with your physical eyes, but you also acknowledge them. Everybody's happy, right? Another thing that is perceived as socially acceptable is to politely excuse yourself when, let's say, leaving the dinner table or the classroom or even the conversation, you know. So children begin to realize these important things as they interact with their parents, peers, relatives, and all sorts of other people. This is why the introduction of emotion regulation as a concept is essential at this age. Emotion regulation is really important socially and emotionally, so thus we have a socio-emotional duo. We can clearly tell the difference between how comfortable babies are about crying in public, but toddlers, on the other hand, feel embarrassed, so they may cry with their hands over their face or go cry in the corner or into their caregiver's arms. This shows us that infants grow and become more socialized, therefore they become more reserved. Socializing in this sense refers to the process of learning how to behave according to socially acceptable ways, as I had mentioned earlier with the example of greetings. In order to regulate emotions, some children generally use avoidance strategies. So, for example, they close their eyes when they see something that they were not pleased with. And then others can use language strategies. An example is when a child is taken to daycare, but is always telling themselves that their mother is coming back soon as a way to reaffirm to themselves and not to feel sad about their mother's absence. So these are just a few strategies that they use in order to regulate their emotions at that age. With all this said, let me finally get to the point regarding emotion regulation. <laughs> so both Balbi and Ainsworth believe that emotion regulation in early childhood relate to a child's attachment style. In other words, 
Your attachment style can affect how you regulate your emotions. And in a child's case, the caregiver needs to play an active role in guiding the child on regulating the emotions. Let us make sense of the emotion regulation term. Is it as obvious or as on the surface as just saying that a parent ought to help their child regulate their emotions? If so, how? For starters, make sure they get enough sleep. Not only does this allow rest, but also makes way for continual development of their brain, which is very important at their age. Additionally, allow the child to express how they feel. Be attentive and engage. If they need to be corrected, acknowledge what they're currently feeling without ruling it out completely and rather show them the right way. This can be done by, for example, encouraging them to see the benefits of sharing their toys instead of being stingy. Emotion regulation is vital as it reveals to us to what extent the child can control their emotions. Therefore, also to what extent they may have anger outbursts or tantrums. It also reveals to us how well they will be able to comply with school demands, such as basic instructions of sitting down where assigned. Will they also be able to control impulses and uphold good manners and etiquette? Will they be able to make friends? Will they be able to see the good in people and to find people as trustworthy? Will they become more independent? These will reveal how well the child can interact with the world around him or her. And therefore, the child can then foster, hopefully foster, healthy relationships then and in the long run. This then brings us to the end of the episode. Next time, we will look at attachment styles in adults. And that one will be even more interesting. Even, even, even more interesting. As I pointed out before, starting the attachment styles topic as a whole, I've been meaning to touch on the modern day online attachments. I don't even know if I should call it that. But anyways, you don't want to miss out on that one. Trust, trust, trust. From Express and Encompass, from me to you, not only is it okay to express yourself, but it is essential. Thank you for listening.